Let's talk about God's Word. We're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning, so if you have your Bibles to follow along, um, John chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 1 in just a few moments. There's a phrase commonly used in Christian circles, more commonly used in a previous generation perhaps, but it's the phrase born again. I'm a born again Christian is a phrase that Jimmy Carter used to describe himself as when he was heading up for his presidential run back in the 1970s. And it was headline news. It was kind of, the, it was a big thing. Jimmy Carter is a born again Christian. Like how does everybody feel about that? And the reason why that was even controversial or even noteworthy is because that phrase was something that largely the hippie culture had, had taken upon themselves during the Jesus people movement in the 19, late 60s um, into the 1970s. There were all these people that were seeking for fulfillment, peace, hope, joy in this counterculture movement and realized that that's not where it was to be found. And a lot of these people in droves were coming to Christ in, in, they were called the Jesus people. It was this great move of God in the 1960s and the 70s. And a phrase that they'd grabbed onto was this phrase, born again. I'm a born again Christian. And Chuck, uh, Jimmy Carter described himself that way. And, and people, when they, when they heard that phrase, would maybe think of the hippies or maybe they'd think of someone who was just really enthusiastic about their faith. You're, so you're, not a, you're a Christian not a cultural Christian, but a born-again Christian, someone that really takes this seriously. And then Chuck Colson, back in the, in, in the Watergate break-in, the, I think it's when, when there's a scandal that like lends itself to now, every scandal from now on has the word gate in it, you know, it's pretty, uh, pretty important, right? We hear the, they throw the word gate on everything now if there's something that happens, but it all started with Watergate, right? There's a break-in that happened um, and surveillance that was being done on the opposite political party. And in the events that led to the resignation of Richard Nixon, sorry for the history lesson here, but to the events that led to the resignation of, of Richard Nixon, Chuck Colson was, they called him Nixon's hatchet man. He was the guy that would just do the dirty work for Richard Nixon. And he was someone who was very morally, Ambiguous, ambiguous, right? He was, he was morally challenged, we'll say it that way. He was just the guy who got in the mix and, and, and did lots of stuff, uh, illegal, shady things that ended up putting him in prison. So Chuck Colson ended up in prison back in the 1970s, and while he was in prison, he met Jesus. And he started a ministry later, years later, called Prison Fellowship, but he served his time in prison, and he wrote a book about the transformation that God had done in his life, and the book's title was Born Again. And they ended up making his story into a film in the 1970s. 1978, a film came out with the same title, Born Again. But it's this phrase that was definitely in the culture and certainly in the Christian culture back during this time period. And now the phrase born again has sort of left that. It's certainly a part of the Christian culture, but now it's just culturally a phrase that people use. It's the name of TV episodes. It's the name of comic books. Apparently there's a new Daredevil series coming out called Daredevil Born Again. It's the title of a lot of albums, by the way, lots of albums. And Rihanna most recently had a song called Born Again that came out on the Wakanda Forever soundtrack. So this is like just a, a phrase that people use in our culture. But it's deeply meaningful to us as followers of Christ because it traces its roots to John chapter 3, a conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus, um, we'll talk more about him in a few moments after we read this story, but 
this is uh, part of our series, Meeting Jesus, where we're talking about encounters that Jesus has with people. He meets someone, he, he has a conversation with them, there's a healing, a miracle, there's all these different meetings that Jesus has with lots of different kinds of people. And we're looking at the life of Christ leading up to Easter through these various meetings that Jesus had with people during his ministry. So with that, we're gonna look at the meeting between Jesus and Nicodemus. We'll see the origin of this phrase, born again. Starting in verse one. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The verse you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." All right, let's talk about what we see there. Nicodemus is a man who is very impressive in, in Jesus' culture. Nicodemus had all the right credentials. His resume was spotless. He was a member of the Pharisees, this elite group of people that were the guardians of the law, the guardians of the truth in the Jewish culture. He was a ruler of the Jews, and from that we understand that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling council that, that uh, led the Israelite people, even under Roman occupation. They had this level of authority, Later, Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel. So it seems that he's got this other um, role as some kind of head teacher. He's the, the person that people would go to to understand God's law. He has a spotless resume. He's an impressive individual. The average person meeting Nicodemus likely would have been intimidated by him. That's Nicodemus. Do you know who that is? Maybe whispering as he goes by. And he comes to Jesus and he speaks to Jesus in a respectful way that is to be admired. He said, Jesus, we know. He calls him rabbi. You're a teacher. He says, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
And then there, if there was a record scratch here, this would be the moment, right? He, this impressive individual comes to Jesus by night. He begins this conversation. We know you are from God. There's something unique about you. Nicodemus is on the right, right track. You were a teacher come from God. No one can do the signs that you do, these miracles, if God was not with them or if they were not from God. And Jesus doesn't say thank you. He's not like, I appreciate that, those kind words. He goes right into the heart of the issue with Nicodemus. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, it's great to meet you. None of that, right? It's, it's this, maybe there was a conversation like that before what we have recorded for us in scripture. But Jesus was not intimidated in the slightest by Nicodemus. He wasn't flattered by his kind words about him. I think Jesus was self-sufficient and secure in who he was. And he goes right to the heart of what Nicodemus needs to hear. The kingdom of God, what I'm bringing to into this world, Jesus says, is only entered by those who are born Again, if the topic of conversation here, according to Jesus, is the kingdom of God, if if Nicodemus, what he might have been thinking when it comes to the kingdom of God, which is something he was expecting, the Messiah is going to come. The Messiah is going to set up this kingdom of God where things will be done. Righteousness will rule and reign. Justice will prevail. Wickedness will be judged and things will be good. This kingdom of God, like he had this belief in this concept of the kingdom of God. But his belief likely had him thinking that when the kingdom of God comes, people like Nicodemus are perfectly situated to enjoy this new life in the kingdom of God. He came from the right family. He's the right nation. He had the the spotless resume, right credentials. He's a Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's the teacher of Israel. He's perfectly situated to enjoy this new kingdom of God. But Jesus says to him, Everyone who enters the kingdom of God only gets in because they have been born again. This phrase born again can be translated born again or it can be translated born from above. And you might have it in your translation, it might say born from above. It's the same concept here. But Jesus is saying here, everyone who comes into the kingdom only comes in because they are made new. They have been born from above. They have been given something that they did not have before. They've been given a fresh start from God. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night, and the commentators that I was researching in preparation for this message are sort of divided about what this means, that he came by night. Was he just there because that's when you have those kind of conversations, it's the cool of the day or the cool of the night, and you can sit out and have a long talk into the evening and talk about philosophical things, the day's work is done, or more likely, I think, he came because he had a lot to lose. Nicodemus is someone who is well-respected and he had a reputation. People would have recognized him. And if he's going to come to Jesus to seek out and to hear from Jesus directly, hey, we're vetting you, Jesus. The word is out about you. We, we need to hear from you about what you're all about. We're impressed by you, but we're not sure we're convinced. He comes at night probably to not ruin his reputation. I don't tend to title my sermons, but if you wanted to give this one a title, Nick at Night might be a good one. Um, let's just move on, I guess. Yeah. Polite laughter. Appreciate that, everybody. 
Nicodemus's response to this proclamation of Jesus, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you have to be born again. Our only way in is to be born again, um, is, is sort of comical, right? His response is like, how, how are you, let's read it again, verse four, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Uh, how does this born again thing work? I don't understand. Do, you, do we get shrunk down and go through the birth process again? We, we, I don't understand how, how this works. And Jesus is using this, this new birth. I mean, it is a figure of speech. He's talking about something very real, but it's a way of describing what will be done. It's a new create. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. We've been given a fresh start. Those of us who are followers of Jesus, at some point, we became new in him. But Nicodemus is sort of misunderstanding this figure of speech, and Pam gave a few examples of idioms, these phrases that we use, and those can be misunderstood certainly by children, or maybe if you're from an international background where you don't recognize the, the figure of speech, maybe you, you would be confused by that. Like the phrase raining cats and dogs, that's a weird one, right? I don't even know, there's, I'm sure there's some origin that makes sense of that one, but it's like, it's, ra it's raining hard is what we're saying. But we don't just say it's raining really hard, we say it's raining cats and dogs. Which I imagine a child might be very excited to go, you know, look out the window to see the cats and dogs falling from the sky, you know? How about playing the piano by ear? I've learned to play the piano by ear. It's like, that's really impressive. Like, you put your head down there and just kind of bang on the keys. It's like, no, we mean you pick it up and you can figure it out, you know? Um, I remember hearing from uh, my brother-in-law, he had a friend that, that did not understand the phrase making ends meet. That means you're having trouble making ends meet, right? Like you're don't, not enough money for all the bills we have and you're having trouble making ends meet. That's what we mean is money is tight. But I think he thought it was some sort of complicated meal to prepare. Like we're having a lot of trouble making ends meet, you know, this thing's very complicated, this cut of meat that we have to make. Nicodemus is, here's this idea of being born again and he's like, I don't, I don't know how this works. But Jesus, in the explanation of what the way things work in his kingdom, begins to unpack all these rich metaphors and the images from the Old Testament to explain his mission, what he is there to do. And he begins to talk about the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit of God. And the Holy Spirit is integral, in, or in, let me stop saying that word because I can't say it. I'm not going to try that. Um, he is integral, I think was the word I was going to use, but uh, to salvation. The Holy Spirit is 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 involved in calling people to Jesus, convicting people of sin, reminding us of the teaching of Jesus. And he begins to talk about the Spirit. And he says, you must be born of water, your first birth, and born of the Spirit, the second birth. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. He begins to talk about the unique work of the Holy Spirit in, in salvation and being born of the Spirit. And there's this deep connection in the Bible between the Holy Spirit and wind. It's this, it shows up all over the place. It's in the book of, of Ezekiel. It's in the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit rushes upon the followers of Christ gathered together for worship. And it said they heard the sound of a mighty rushing wind coming into the room where they were. That the Holy Spirit is here. And then he start, starts to talk about the Son of Man and this, this, again, an image from deep biblical Old Testament roots, Daniel and Ezekiel, this idea of the, of the Son of Man. And he's describing himself, taking that phrase upon himself. 
And he says, the Son of Man, um, in verse, we're going to skip down to verse uh, 14 or 13. No one has ascended into heaven except he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And then he says in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He begins to talk about this aspect of Jesus' ministry, what he is there to do, and it is that he as the Son of Man will be lifted up. And when we read that phrase, that only the Gospel of John records this, this, these phrases of Jesus using this lifted up, it's one of three lifted up sayings in the Gospel of John, we should see definitely that there are several layers there to what he's saying. He, he will be lifted up and we, at one level, this is Jesus will be magnified. People will see him. He, he will be lifted up, raised up in people's minds and focusing on him. In that way, there's this kind of idea. Jesus will be magnified. We'll, we'll see after his death on the cross that he'll be raised from the dead. He'll be lifted up. And then literally the disciples gather to see Jesus ascend into heaven. He was lifted up in that way. But certainly here, Jesus is talking about how he will be lifted up on a cross that Jesus would be lifted up like the serpent in the wilderness. And we'll talk about that story again, or we'll talk about that story more in just a moment. And we know that Jesus, this, this phrase lifted up, speaks of the cross because after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem in John chapter 12, verses 32 to 33, he says this, and when I am lifted up from the earth, and I, when I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die that Jesus would later use this phrase to talk about his death on the cross, that he would be lifted up, literally raised up off the earth on a cross. And that when he does that, he would draw people to himself. This reference to Nicodemus is referencing a story, a strange story in the book of Numbers. Numbers chapter 21, verses four through nine. I'm gonna read this, this story. This is during the Israelites' wilderness wanderings. He says, in the same way Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. This story is a weird one. Um, that they are judged, the nation of Israel are out in the wilderness and they are complaining and grumbling against God and his provision. And in Numbers 21, four through nine, it says that from Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food, the manna that God had graciously provided them. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Jesus says, like this story, I will be lifted up, and everyone who looks to me, they will live. Right? The children of Israel are facing death because of their disobedience. They are facing um, judgment of God because they have sinned. You know, they've turned away from serving the true God and, and loving him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And because of that, they're being, being judged. 
and they're, they're dropping like these fiery serpents that are being sent out. They're, they're taking people out left and right. We have sinned. Please save us. What can we do now? Like, please help us out. And what they have to do, not, not because, they, they, or because they don't have a lot of other options, right? If he says, put a, build this thing, put a fiery serpent, the same thing that is killing people, I want you to put it on this pole and raise it up. And then all people have to do is look to it, right? If the people had to walk to it and touch it, they would be out of luck, right? They couldn't do anything. They were laying there in pain. All they had to do was look. And if they looked to it, they would find life. And Jesus says in a similar way, I'm here to bring life to people who look to me. I'm here to, to, to give them something that they don't have, cannot possibly have on their own. And what they need to do is look to Jesus. That's the most simple act of faith ever, by the way, isn't it? You, not... not earning enough, not polishing your resume, your spiritual resume, but simply looking to Jesus and bringing, and that bringing life. Um, I'm not the first person to come up with uh, this title for this story from the book of Numbers, but I've heard it described as snakes on a plane, which I enjoy. I like that. The Numbers story, snakes on a plane. No one appreciated that. I thought it was pretty great. Um, but this, from this story, again, Jesus says there's something about life being offered from those who look to him being lifted up. Eternal life. This is a, 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 the word life is in the name of our church, right? Life roads. And the significance of this, the symbolic nature of this, is that this is what Jesus offers, right? He's there to offer life. And on the back of your program every week, it describes that, that what we mean by life when we say the word life. It's not just the fact that we're living and breathing, our hearts are beating, we're grateful for that, but that's just biological life. What Jesus offers is something far more than that. It's this eternal life, it's vitality, it's zoe is the Greek word. And it's here in verse 15, it's here in verse 16, that Jesus offers eternal life. He offers us life that, that continues certainly into eternity, that we'll enjoy for eternity, but it starts now. It's this life of hope and meaning. It's something that the world does not offer. It's something that anywhere you might look apart from God, you, you will come up empty. God offers us a relationship with him, this life that he offers. And then we have the crown jewel verse, right? John three sixteen. That That many of if you, if you feel pretty confident you could quote John three sixteen, I want you to raise your hand. I'm not gonna ask you to do it, but a lot of hands, majority of our hands went up. This is the verse that we teach our, our children. Likely many of you learned it for the first time when you're children. It's, it's, it is our message in condensed form. It is what Christians represent. It is what Christians believe in this short sentence. Um, it's tweetable, right? At least the old Twitter you know, character limits. It fits there. It's 160 characters. It's this short condensation of what Christians believe, and that's why it's the one that we want everyone to learn because it's like if you only know one verse that tells you the whole story of what we're all about, it's this one. Tim Tebow played in the College Football National Championship in 2009 uh, for the University of Florida, and before the game, he was like, I want to do something. I'm going to be on the national stage. People all over the, the, the country and in some cases all over the world will, will be watching this game. And I want to be a testimony. And so what he decided was in the eye black underneath his, his eyes, he put John 3.16. So that anyone who saw him on national television with his helmet off or on would see John 3.16 on his face. And apparently it led to 94 million Google searches of the phrase, what is John 3.16? Isn't that amazing? 
This is our, I mentioned this, our crown jewel. When, when a Bible is being translated into a new language, this is usually the first verse they translate. A language that has never had the Bible in its uh, language before. They're like, they start there. John 3.16. We need people to know this. There was a man in Africa named Gaylord Kambarami, who is the general secretary of the Bible Society in Zimbabwe. And he tried to give a New Testament to a, a young man who was very just belligerent and sort of disrespectful toward him. He's like, I want you to have this Bible. And the man said, I'll, I'll take the Bible, but you should know that I'm going to roll those pages up and smoke cigarettes in them, right? Because they're perfect thin, thinness to, for cigarette paper. And Mr. Kambarami said, I, I understand that, but at least promise to read the page of the New Testament before you smoke it. And the man agreed. And the two went their separate ways. Fifteen years later, the two men met at a convention in Zimbabwe. And the scripture-smoking man had found Christ and was now a full-time evangelist. And he told the audience, I smoked Matthew. And I smoked Mark. And I smoked Luke. But when I got to John 3.16, I couldn't smoke anymore. My life was changed from that moment. Isn't that wonderful? John 3.16 gives us a picture of what, what, what's going on with the world. Jesus says that the reason why he is there is that so that people will not perish. That is the destiny and the destination of people apart from Jesus is perishing. He says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. What's wrong with the world? People are perishing. People are, are just feeling all the effects of the brokenness of sin, the brokenness of this world. They are far from God and perishing. But God is a God of love who made a way to save the world, and that's through Jesus. So look to Jesus. We all share in common, um, there's a lot of things we don't have in common in this room. Different ages, different economic situations, different backgrounds from different parts of the country, things like that. But we all share in common the fact that we have all been born. Like we all check that off, check the box there. We all were born at one point, right? Uh, every single one of us. Um, none of us were hatched, I don't think, right? We're all, all born. And Jesus is using this metaphor of, of being born, right? Being, being born. He says that you need to be born again. You need to be brought into this world and, and through this born again situation. What Jesus offers, that's how we enter into the kingdom of God. Now, you personally, your own birth, how involved were you in your own birth? Pretty uninvolved, right? You were just kind of there. There was someone doing a lot of work. I've been there at the birth of each of my children, my three kids, and it's, it's just amazing. Like, it's a miraculous thing. It's like, it's just one of those things that is a special moment, um, but it was a lot of work for someone, not me, right? I was there to offer support. With this new birth, it's a similar thing. It's something that happens to us. It's a gift of God. And we're not really involved other than looking to Jesus and saying, I need that. I need you, Jesus. And looking to Jesus continues to be the best thing we can do in our walk with Jesus. If you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, this is, this is how we continue and grow in our relationship with him. Look to Jesus. This is how we battle sin. We look to Jesus. 
This is how we come into his family. This is how we grow. We, we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There are no spiritual grandchildren, right? You, we, don't, we don't inherit being born into the family of God. It's something that happens to each of us. It's, there are only spiritual children, right? We get to be sons and daughters of God, not by our birth, but by our second birth. Charles Spurgeon um, tells the story of how he was born again, how he received the gift of eternal life by looking to Jesus. And I want to share some of his testimony. This is from his words. Charles Spurgeon, of course, was a great uh, evangelist and pastor in the 1800s that led many, many people to Jesus in England and in our country as well. And he describes it this way, uh, his conversion, January 6th, 1856. I sometimes think I might have been a darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning when I was going to a certain place of worship. When I could go no further because of the snow, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or maybe 15 people. I'd heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved and if they could tell me that. I did not care how much they made my headache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or a tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. His words, not mine. It's... He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, from Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse for, of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man doesn't need to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. He said in his Essex accent, he says, many on ye are looking to yourselves, but it is no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to him by and by. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Some say we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. O poor sinner, look unto me, look unto me. When he had gone to about that length and managed to spin, spin out 10 minutes or so, he was at the end of his tether, Spurgeon says. And then he looked at me under the gallery and with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, but just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew my heart, he said, young man, you look miserable. Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. <laughs> However, it was a good blow and it struck right home. He continued, and you always will be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now this moment, you will be saved. 
Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. And so it was with me. I'd been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away, and then, there and then, the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away, and that moment I saw the sun, and I could have risen that instance and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Then he goes on to describe how looking to Jesus helps us battle our sin, helps us battle temptation. He says, when I was anxious about the possibility of a just God pardoning me, I understood and saw by faith that he who is the son of God became man and in his own blessed person bore my sin in his own body on the tree. I saw that the chastisement of my peace was laid on him and that with his stripes I was healed. It was because the son of God, supremely glorious in his matchless person, undertook to vindicate the law by bearing the sentence due to me, that therefore God was able to pass by my sin. My sole hope for heaven lies in the full atonement made on Calvary's cross for the ungodly. On that I firmly rely. I have not the shadow of a hope anywhere else. Personally, I could never have come my, overcome my own sinfulness. I tried and failed. My evil propensities were too many for me till in the belief that Christ died for me, I cast my guilty soul on him and then I received a conquering principle by which I overcame my sinful self. The doctrine of the cross can be used to slay sin. Even as the old warriors used their huge two-handed swords and mowed down their foes at every stroke, there was nothing like faith in the sinner's friend. It overcomes all evil. If Christ has died for me, ungodly as I am, without strength as I am, then I cannot live in sin any longer, but must arouse myself to love and serve him who hath redeemed me. I cannot trifle with the evil which slew my best friend. I must be holy for his sake. How can I live in sin when he has died to save me from it? My friends, we need to look to Jesus and our, our people around us that are perishing. We, we need to invite them to look to Jesus. And then we look to Jesus to grow in our relationship with him and receive what only he offers us. Look to Jesus and live. The Gospel of John tells us about Nicodemus two more times because the question's lingering at the end of this, right? It just says, it says Nicodemus came to him and this is how the conversation went and then nothing else. What did Nicodemus, this very religious person, probably a very moral person, well-respected person, what did he do with this information from Jesus that he was given? Did he believe? We hear from Nicodemus two more times in the Gospel of John. One is in John 7:50, where he's defending Jesus publicly. He's with the Sanhedrin and he's talking about Jesus and he said, well, shouldn't we hear from him first before we decide we should pass judgment on him and they, they, they sort of condemn him, they dismiss him. And then in John 19, after the death of Jesus on the cross, the Gospel of John tells us this about Nicodemus. John 19, 38 through 40. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. 
So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial customs of the Jews. We have this picture of, there's actually a statue that Michelangelo uh, made. I don't know if we got that ready for the, on the screen here. This is uh, Michelangelo's portrayal of Nicodemus helping to take Jesus' body off of the cross, along with Mary and I think Martha or maybe Mary Magdalene, and his image of kind of what this scene might have been like. But we have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus at the body of Jesus, preparing his body for burial. Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. This is like, this is an astronomical amount of money, something like $100,000 worth of, of um, myrrh and aloe to prepare his body for burial. And Jesus only needed it for a couple days, right? Three days. And then didn't need it anymore. And maybe if Nicodemus would have known that, maybe he would have uh, saved a little bit of money. But, but I think the picture of Jesus rising from the dead in the tomb and the smell that he smells is what this extravagant gift is that Nicodemus has brought to him. And I believe Nicodemus came around. I think Nicodemus was one of his followers. Church history tells us that he did look to Jesus and find life. And may we all look to Jesus. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for this time of considering together this man that met with you. Nicodemus, who was a seeker, he was searching for something. He knew that he didn't have everything he needed, and he came to you and he heard words of truth. And your words give us life, Lord. Your words help us to know you, that we can look to you and live. We can have life in you. And so, Lord, for all the believers in this room, may that be the source of hope, the source of fulfillment we see. May our eyes be full of the glory of you. And may that fuel us, may that fill us, may that sustain us, may that help us on our mission of helping others know you. Lord, you sent your son into this world so that no one would perish, but we might have forgiveness of our sins through faith in you. And it's freely offered to any who would come to you. And so, Lord, may we take that mission out of these doors with us and that message out of these doors. We have people that we love that are perishing. We have people in our circles that need you, that need that salvation that you offer. And Lord, may we just overflow with it. So full of life that people want what we have. May we walk with you well. May we turn from sin. May we, um, Lord, just walk through this life with a sense of who you are, the one who gives us life, the one who gives us hope. And Lord, for any gathered here or watching online, Lord, who has, has yet to put their faith in you, Right now, Lord, may they look to you and live. May you forgive them of their sins. May they receive the salvation that you freely offer. And then may they join us in our mission of helping other people know you as well. You are so good and we love you and we are grateful for everything that you offer. Help us follow you well. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.